are again with another week of Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. My name is Richard, KB5JBV, and thank you all for downloading us this week. I'm seeing more and more folks signing in on the Frapper map. It is amazing. We are, the downloads are moving a lot better on the new service, and uh, it's getting downright impressive on this end. I'm going to try and keep this particular segment short because we do have a fairly long interview with uh, K9LA, Carl, uh, he's going to be talking about radio wave propagation for us this week. And it was so interesting, I just could not stop the tape. So, let's get to, uh, uh, let's get to our hellos this week. Uh, those who have identified themselves on the Frapper map, uh, we'd like to say hello to Billy in Mesquite, Texas, AA5HU. Uh, Bruce in Richland, Washington, uh, KE7IQT. Richard in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, uh, VE6RLB. He's the first uh, Canada station on the Frapper map. We'd also like to say hello to Jeremy, our buddy over there at uh, Amateur Radio Q&A, KC5EYC in Middleton, Tennessee. Uh, he's gone ahead and stuck a pin in the map for himself. And then we have all those unidentified hams out there that have gone ahead and uh, stuck a pin in the map. Uh, we'd like to welcome the listeners in Charlotte, North Carolina, Maynard, Massachusetts. Uh, we've got a new one in Newark, New Jersey, uh, and even one in Trinidad, Colorado. Now for the other unidentified folks that uh, I've been able to keep tabs on that didn't stick a pin in the map, I'd like to thank, uh, I'd like to welcome our listeners in Hungary, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the Netherlands. And I hope that you guys will go ahead and stick a pin in the map so we uh, can show everybody y'all are out there listening. Uh, also, I'd like to hear from you guys about. Uh, what ham radio is like in your country. Uh, I think that's something that would be quite interesting. Maybe we can even work up a show uh, targeting it, uh, targeting looking at amateur radio in some of these other countries. It uh, really intrigues me. I like to find out what kind of conditions hams are working under in other places. Okay, uh, we are currently looking for uh, somebody who is reasonably, reasonably uh, well-versed in the Linux operating system where it pertains to amateur radio. Uh, I use it myself on some occasions for PSK31 and packet cluster and that kind of stuff, but I'd like to uh, get somebody in here that we could sit and discuss it instead of everybody having to listen to me talk about it. I'm also uh, looking for some feedback from you new generals out there, you guys that have recently gotten your general class license. Uh, I would actually like to gather up several of y'all and us sit down, have a discussion, and let folks know what it's like uh, coping with the new challenges of being on HF. We are still looking for a logo for Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast, and y'all are going to have to help me out with this because I've tried. <laughs> I have really tried, and it is just not working for me because where drawing is concerned, and in most places, but most especially uh, working up a logo, I have very little talent at all. Oh yes, I almost forgot in our list of welcomes, uh, all those people, and apparently uh, we have the entire Richardson Wireless Club listening to us from Richardson, Texas, because... There's just way too many pins out there for it not to be the whole club. And uh, we are really, I'm telling you, the Metroplex is really climbing on board with this thing. And I'm glad to see that uh, that's going on in other places too. Now, as far as the Linux and the new generals and the logo, uh, y'all go over and send me an email. Give me some kind of feedback. I haven't really heard from any of y'all in quite a while. And that's kb5jbv at gmail.com. kb5jbv at gmail.com. I'm almost at the end of the announcement. Y'all hang with me just a minute. <clears throat> uh, Belton Ham Fest is this weekend in Belton, Texas, just outside of Temple. 
And y'all come on down because I'm going to be out there roaming around. And y'all keep a looking at the name tags. And if y'all see me, walk up, shake my hand, let me know how you like Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Um, you know, this show is, is listener-driven, and I don't get near enough feedback from guys. For those of y'all that are close enough to go to Belton this weekend, the Ham Expo is being held at the Bell County Expo Center in Belton, Texas. That's just south of Temple, Texas, and north of Austin. Uh, from Dallas, you would go south on I-35 until you got to the 292 exit, and then go ahead and exit, and there's a big dome down there on the Expo grounds. You might want to head that way. They have the uh, heart of... I believe that used to be Heart of Texas Fairgrounds down there. I'm not sure, but it's been a long time since I've been down that way. The doors open at 7 a.m., and uh, they'll be there all day long. Belton's unusual as far as ham fest in the state of Texas because they have it twice a year, every year, about six months apart. So y'all go on out to Belton, Texas, and enjoy... Uh, Enjoy the ham fest. Their talking frequency will be frequency will be 146.82, and the PL tone is 123.0. Once again, that's the 2007 April 2007 Ham Expo down in Belton, Texas. So y'all come down there, and if you see me roaming around down there, uh, walk up and shake my hand. Okay, hams in Jacksonville, Texas, and if you don't know where Jacksonville, Texas is, then you're probably not going to be able to handle this. Uh, you guys down in Jacksonville, I will be down there this Friday. Y'all uh, y'all listen for me on the repeater, and if you hear me, uh, y'all don't hide from me. Just say hello or something, and I'll go away. Uh, that's the guys in Jacksonville, Texas. Y'all be listening for me. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to uh, our next segment uh, with Carl, K9LA. Carl has written... Uh, written a lot of propagation articles for different magazines over the years, QST, uh, QRZ, uh, World Radio, Monitoring Times, that kind of stuff. And uh, he is really, uh, really a crackerjack propagation guy. So y'all uh, y'all get you a soda and kick back and give us a listen. We'll go ahead and move on to the next segment. This week we're here with uh, Carl, K9LA. Uh, as one of the articles I read about him describes him, he is a renowned propagation guru. And a uh, little, little, little bit of what's going on with Carl, he's president of the Fort Wayne, Indiana DX Association. He holds a DXCC honor roll and five-band DXCC among uh, writing numerous articles for numerous uh, amateur-related journals. And today we're going to talk with Carl about radio wave propagation. Uh, I know it's a big mystery to a lot of y'all, but uh, we're going to see if Carl can help us out. Thank you for coming on Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast, Carl. Oh, I'm glad to help out, Richard. All righty. Um, our guys, we're, we're, we're trying to make sure everybody's not afraid of propagation. It's probably one of the biggest words in amateur radio, and, yeah, we get a little bit of an overview when we're taking our entry-level license test, but uh, a lot of guys are still unclear on what uh, what's going on with it. Can you give us a, a, a quick overview of possibly what radio wave propagation is? Sure, I can do that, yes. Well, in general, uh, propagation is just the mechanism by which an electromagnetic wave gets from point A to point B. You know, there are many ways to do that. Uh, a lot of them we're quite familiar with. For example, line of sight, that is a propagation mode. And that's what we use when we uh, you know, talk through repeaters or even talk through a satellite. Uh, another mode that we should be quite familiar with is ground wave. And if you just listen to any AM broadcast stations, uh, um, that, uh, that's ground wave, and uh, uh, you'll get quite familiar with that. Uh, when we start dealing with uh, amateur radio propagation, uh, generally we, we, we want to talk about uh, two, two uh, parts of the atmosphere. Uh, one is the troposphere, and uh, tropospheric propagation is mostly VHF, UHF, and if you've ever listened to an FM radio and 
heard a real distant station coming in or watched TV and seen a distant TV station coming in, that's more than likely that's uh, due to tropospheric propagation. Now what's most important to uh, hams is HF propagation, and that's via the ionosphere. And there are many subsets of ionospheric propagation, and we're going to get into that, I think, a little bit later. And of course, there's some more exotic modes that don't fall into the ones I've described. Uh, one comes to mind is moon bounce. So it is a form of propagation, uh, and it has a little reflection off the moon involved, too. So uh, hopefully that's a, a good overview of what is propagation. That, that'll probably clear quite a few things up for uh, some of the folks out there. And uh, that's one of the things I like, Carl, is one of those guests that I ask them a question and they answer two or three of them. Yeah, <laughs> Makes things go. a whole lot easier. Well, um, do radio waves propagate differently at different frequencies? Yes, they do. Um, uh, and, and it's really... There are three things that an electromagnetic wave can do. Generally, it goes in a straight line unless it's uh, affected by something, and that, that something is the troposphere or the ionosphere. And uh, the amount of bending that incurs, uh, which is called refraction, is very dependent on the frequency of the electromagnetic wave uh, with respect to the medium it's propagating in. So, for example, uh, if you're on, uh, you know, 10 meters, uh, the troposphere uh, generally won't do any bending, but the ionosphere, of course, will bend the 10-meter wave back to Earth, and that allows us to talk to distant stations. Um, as we go down in frequency, generally the wave will bend more as we go lower in frequency, and that has lots of implications to... Uh, just how propagation and how a wave gets from point A to point B. Alrighty, uh, yeah, uh, I've uh, I've fooled around with most of the frequencies I can find radio for, and uh, I've got a lot of ha talking three or four hundred miles on a handheld stories that uh, people get tired of hearing around here. <laughs> that's more than likely that's via tropospheric propagation, and uh, it's this bending in the troposphere which isn't too far up above us and i always make sure i always make sure i get a card from them guys because a lot right. of times folks won't believe me in fact uh yeah. i'm not sure if you're familiar with copper's cove it's uh it's three four hundred miles from here and i worked a guy one night on half a watt on a handheld mm -hmm. standing in the middle of a parking lot believe it or yeah. not oh uh, interesting okay uh let's see getting back on track uh, okay these guys uh well, there's a lot of terms these guys have heard, and some of them uh, they may or may not understand. Uh, one of the ones that gets thrown around a lot around here is space weather. Uh, can you give us an idea what space weather is? Sure. Uh, the term space weather it refers to the impact that the sun has on our Earth. In other words, uh, it's a term describing how the sun affects our environment, and our environment being the Earth uh, environment. Uh, of course, on the good side, the sun provides for life. If we didn't have the sun, we wouldn't be talking on this iPod right at the moment. On the bad side, though, uh, the sun can hiccup, and it can disrupt, disrupt propagation uh, for us and, and, and our amateur radio endeavors. So it's very important that that as amateurs we kind of understand the basics of what the sun can do which then uh, results in space weather and we're going to get into a little bit more of that I think later probably when we talk about some uh, some specific disruptions to propagation and it's interesting to note that uh, space weather is, is uh, important to amateur radio because you know we're interested in it but it's really more important to uh, 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 scientists for other reasons for example uh, if the space weather is bad, it can disrupt satellites. It can induce currents in a power grid and cause blackouts. And also it can cause harmful radiation for our astronauts when they're up there uh, going around the Earth or uh, going to the moon or maybe in the future even to, a, to a, you know, Mars or one of the other planets. So uh, space weather generally means what's happening around the Earth, but it can extend even further because the sun's reaches uh, quite far. 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> getting off on, well, I'm not going to get off on other things. We're going to try and keep this propagation. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, pretty much why solar flares are not our friends. Uh, yep. We, we, their power grids go down. Uh, some of these newer electronic devices just really don't handle uh handle things like that very well yep. something to be said for old tube radios i guess okay yep. so, so let's drill down into this a little bit more uh, you know these guys are trying to figure out how propagation can uh, work for them so i guess we probably need to uh, discuss uh, the a index can you give us an okay. idea what the a index is sure but uh, what we're going to start with is the k index because uh the A index is derived from the K index. So let's start with the K index. And to do that, what we're going to do is talk about the Earth's magnetic field because uh, that's uh, basically the K index is a measure of uh, uh, the activity of the Earth's magnetic field. Um, the Earth's magnetic field can be, to a first order, approximated by a simple dipole. You know, like you see in uh, you know, your, uh, your high school text, you know, it's got the north and the south pole. and Sure enough, the Earth has a north and a south pole. Um, when the sun hiccups, though, the result, which we'll uh, talk about uh, geomagnetic field activity and uh, later, uh, can result in a distortion of the Earth's magnetic field. And the amount of distortion uh, from a quiet field is measured with a magnetometer. So what this instrument does is it just sits there and monitors the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, if the sun was constant, you know, constant forever and ever, the magnetometer would just sit there in a straight line. But what happens is uh, uh, every once in a while the sun hiccups and the result is the magnetic field is disturbed. Now the K-index is a measurement of the deviation of the Earth's magnetic field from the quiet time curve in a three-hour period. So that's the, one of the important things to note is the K-index is a, a three-hour index. And like I said, it measures the maximum deviation of the Earth's magnetic field from a quiet time condition in that three-hour period. And uh, based on how much it deviates, it's assigned a value from zero, which is quiet, to nine, which is most disturbed. Uh, this is the K-index. Uh, it is logarithmic. In other words, if the K-index goes from 0 to 1, that's a factor of 10. So that means there's a pretty good jump in uh, what's going on. In general, we as amateurs would like the K-index to be small. So that leads us right into the A-index. Um, the A-index, like I said earlier, is derived from the, uh, from the K-index, and what it is, the A-index is basically a daily value. So what it does is takes the eight three-hour K-indices and averages them, and what it comes up with is a, a, an average of the deviation from the quiet geomagnetic field curve over the entire day. Now it's reported on a, a linear scale from 0 to 400, 0 being quiet and 400 corresponding to the K equals 9, and that's done just to uh, uh, allow more resolution than the K-index. Uh, and, and just like the K-index, the A-index can also uh, be put together with many observatories uh, from data from many observatories worldwide. And that index is then called the planetary A-index or the planetary K-index. And it gives you a good idea of overall what's happening to the Earth's magnetic field uh, on a very large scale. So uh, Again, the K-index and the A-index, generally we'd like them to be small. Now, there are some propagation modes that I think we're going to might talk about later that uh, uh, want a higher A or K-index, and uh, we can get into that in a little bit uh, down the road here. Well, actually, we've kind of skirted it three or four times. Uh, we could probably go ahead at this point and, uh, you know, uh, the geomagnetic field and uh, Geomagnetic storms, uh, we have a lot of problems with geomagnetic storms wiping out some of the traffic nets down in this area, down on 40 meters early in the day. Uh, could you expound upon that a little bit? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, Space Environment Center in Boulder, which is a division of NOAA, National Oceanic and uh, 
uh, atmospheric administration. Uh, it was my wife in the background helping me. <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, AE9YL, Vicky. And uh, uh, they, what they did is they uh, uh, put together all the disturbances of prop to propagation into three buckets, uh, three categories. And the first one is geomagnetic storms. Okay, And it is one of the... Uh, probably the major disturbance is the propagation because it generally can last the longest. And what happens is uh, there's either an explosion on the sun called a coronal mass ejection, which is uh, ejects lots of material. And what that results in is in a, uh, a shock wave heading towards Earth. And what that does is distorts the magnetic field and that results in uh, disturbed propagation. Um, other manifestations of a geomagnetic storm are visual aurora. Uh, if you live in the northern hemisphere or in the northern latitudes, uh, you, know, you can see aurora. And, and even the bigger storms, uh, you can see visual aurora down even uh, at latitudes in the Dallas area. Uh, they occur, but not that often. Uh, the more important effect, I think, of geomagnetic fields is to power grids because they can induce currents that will shut down a power station and cause blackouts, and that's happened before too. And that's why many scientists are uh, interested in forecasting the strength of a geomagnetic storm in order to predict uh, and tell power companies that, hey, there's something coming. Uh, you need to do something just to protect yourself. And like I said uh, just a couple minutes ago, the geomagnetic storm can last for several days before the ionosphere gets back to normal so it's probably the one that really disturbs everything the most. Now, that's one of the disturbances to propagation. Uh, another one, uh, well, there, there are two, and they're really related to solar flares. Uh, as you said, Richard, earlier, solar flares really aren't our friend, and uh, th that's really true. Uh, there are two things that can happen when a solar flare erupts. The first, it gives off lots of radiation at X-ray wavelengths, and that can cause increased deregion absorption on the sunlit side of the Earth, and that's going to uh, cause our past to uh, go away for a bit. Uh, generally, that's you know maybe half an hour, hour type time frame. So uh, that aspect of a solar flare definitely shows itself, but it doesn't last that long. Now, the other issue that a solar flare can do is it can emit relativistic protons. In other words, protons of very, very high energy. And they get to Earth rather quick, and they also cause increased D-region absorption, but over the, in the polar cap. So if there's any paths that you're talking to someone, uh, you know, over the pole, usually the North Pole into Asia or something, those paths could go away for, uh, for a day or two. Uh, the solar flares are really the, the ones that uh, you know, astronauts are are worried about because that uh, the radiation, the X-ray uh, wavelengths can uh, you know penetrate uh, spaceships. Uh, those energetic protons can go right through also, and they can cause hazards to our astronauts. And of course, they can disrupt our satellites too. So the the thing to remember about uh, disturbances disturbances to propagation is that there are really three. One is the geomagnetic storm, which generally is the worst because it lasts the longest. Uh, the other is a uh, solar flare causing X-ray wavelength radiation that causes increased D-region absorption. And the third is uh, protons coming out of a solar flare that cause uh, increased D-region absorption in the polar cap. Um, if you ever go to the, uh, uh, the uh, Space Environment Center website, which is sec.noaa.gov, uh, you can get a lot of information there uh, about uh, disruptions of the propagation. All right. Well, <clears throat> uh, yeah, was, it took me a second to get that written down. Okay. So we've covered the K and the A index, and mm -hmm. we've talked about geomagnetic storms. Something else these guys hear a lot about are, uh, well, how do sunspots figure into all this? Okay, well, sunspots uh, generally are our friends. <laughs> um, the uh, sunspots uh, are areas on the sun that are associated with 
radiation at extreme ultraviolet wavelengths. Uh, now that's good because this radiation at those wavelengths can strip electrons from a neutral atom or molecule in the atmosphere and that's what forms our ionosphere. So the more sunspots, the more extreme ultraviolet radiation and therefore the ionosphere is more dense. And what that means is the uh, ionosphere can refract ever higher frequencies. So what that says is uh, when the ionos when we have lots of sunspots, 10 meters is open and 15 and 12 meters. When we don't have a lot of sunspots like right now, uh, it's very rare to hear many stations on 12 meters and 10 meters. So in summary, we, we like sunspots uh, because that uh, opens up the higher bands, even six meters, and allows us to work uh, stations from all around the world. And uh, that's one of the exciting, one of the many exciting facets of amateur radio. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been licensed nearly 20 years. I got licensed mm -hmm. on the high side of a cycle. And uh, uh, let me tell you, I've had a lot of fun with the... Uh, with 10 meters over the years, I really have. Uh, speaking of cycles, uh, uh, well, we'll go ahead and skip over that. Um, okay, so we've got all this information. We've got the A index and the K index and sunspot numbers and all this other stuff. Where would somebody go to find this information in real time, maybe? Okay, well, the one of the easiest is just to turn your radio on go to 10 megahertz, that's probably uh, the best frequency for most of us in the United States, and listen to WWV. At 18 minutes past the hour, they give the current K index, and remember now the K index is, is a three-hour index, so that's pretty current. It'll tell you what the magnetic field is doing you know, within uh, the past three hours. They also give yesterday's A index, which is the uh, average of the eight three-hour K indices. And they also give the solar flux, which can be uh, uh, translated into uh, a sunspot number. Uh, if you want more information, there are many websites that uh, uh, you can get this from. I mentioned uh, the Space Environment Center, which is SEC. If you go to sec.noaa.gov, you will find uh, you know, if you may have to do some surfing in their pages, but you'll find uh, uh, K indices, A indices, uh, sunspots, and everything else. Another good website is SpaceWeather. There's that word, spaceweather.com. Uh, they also uh, predict what the uh, upcoming conditions might be uh, with respect to are there going to be any solar flares, are there going to be any uh, disruptions to the magnetic field, etc. Uh, there's also another a good website uh, put together by a gentleman in the Netherlands. It's uh, www.dxlc.com slash solar. And the DXLC of that stands for DX Listening Club. And he has uh, a daily report of what the sun is doing and shows some nice pretty pictures too. Uh, also, one of the uh, major amateur radio hosts on the web has a propagation website, and it's dx.qsl.net slash propagation. And uh, they regurgitate the WWV report, and they also give the latest sunspot numbers. So uh, the Internet is a very good way to get some good real-time information on what's going on with the space weather. Yes, I've noticed that myself. Uh, also, uh, in a few areas, we still have uh, one of them up live on, on packet here, but you can also get into the DX clusters, I believe. And uh, uh, I know the one I sign on to gives you a lot of that information is part of your log, part of the log on when you uh, hook up with them. Okay. Um, yeah, that's right. Good. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right, because I run... Uh... I run the, uh, I use the VE7CC's packet cluster program. And in the lower right-hand corner, there's uh, some uh, 
windows for uh, flux, solar flux, and A index and K index and uh, geomagnetic field uh, 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 status. So, yep, that's that's there too. That's a good point, Richard. And uh, I didn't really get it on here, but uh, let, let's go with this real quick. You know, the I found that there are a few fairly handy utilities out there that you can run on your computer and you plug the numbers in and it'll give you a nice little graph of uh, what's going on. Do you have one of those that you prefer? There are quite a few <laughs> propagation programs out there that uh, that uh, amateur radio operators use. Uh, the one that's uh, kind of the industry standard is is called IONCAP, and one of its derivatives is VOACAP, which is uh, uh, the version of IONCAP that was done by the Voice of America to aid in their international shortwave broadcast schedules. Uh, VOA cap is available uh, as a free download. It's uh, a little more involved than some of the other ones, but it's, like I said, the industry standard and it's regarded as the most accurate. Uh, there's some other ones out there that'll do just fine. Uh, one of the ones I like is W6EL prop. That's available uh, from uh, DX uh, uh, dot qsl dot net slash w6 el prop and it's only a 500k download so it's pretty uh, it, it ought to do pretty good even over a dial-up uh, uh, connection on on the internet it also has a great uh, mapping feature you can uh, input the uh, transmitter location the receiver location and uh, input a time and a month and it'll show where the terminator is in other words, where the uh, division between day and night is, it'll show the short path and the long path. So it gives a good overall picture of uh, what propagation uh, may involve, uh, just looking at a picture. And there are several others out there. Uh, HF prop comes to mind. And if you just do a search on uh, HF propagation programs, I bet you you'd come up with at least uh, 10 to 15 hits on uh, programs and most of these are free and they're generated by gentlemen who uh, you know just have an interest in that kind of stuff and they like to share it with everybody well I'm you know I'm glad to know that I picked the appropriate program because I use W6EL prop myself and uh, you know I can just fire that thing up and let it run and uh, come back and stick my head in the shack every once in a while and when it appears to be opening up on the computer screen I can Hit the hit the on button on the HF rig and off I go. Uh, I I really like that one myself. Um. Yeah, there's you know I, there's a lot of good ones out there and, and uh, they they all uh, have one thing in common and is the model of the ionosphere. They all basically use the same model. So what's different is uh, all the bells and whistles and how they present that uh, end data and uh, that's. You know, the thing to do is play with these different programs and pick the one that you feel most comfortable with and you like the best, and then go with that. Okay, so uh, we've talked about uh, space weather. We've talked about propagation programs. We've talked about uh, numerous things. So now let's get on to the fun stuff. Uh, you know, we've heard of these different propagation modes, and some of these guys out there might have heard of them, might not have heard of them. You know, I picked a few that uh, have always been interested, interesting to me. So uh, maybe, maybe you can give us a rundown on what some of these are. The the first one that comes to mind is uh, sporadic E or E skip. Okay. Yeah. Why don't we start with that? That's a good one to start with because. Uh, uh, it forces you to think about the structure of the ionosphere. Uh, and uh, let's start at the top, kind of. That, that There are basically three different regions in the ionosphere, uh, the D region, the E region, and the F region. And uh, a lot of people think of them in terms of layers, uh, but they're really not layers. Uh, if you look at the electron density uh, versus height, it's a continuous curve. Uh, it has uh, a slight maximum at the E region peak. It has a bigger maximum at the F region peak. 
and the D region is more of an inflection point. So it's kind of more appropriate to talk about regions as opposed to layers. Uh, but having said that, uh, the sporadic, uh, when you talk about e-skip, uh, uh, it's a mode of propagation that uh, doesn't happen all the time. Uh, the, the main E region is very well understood. Uh, that's because it's under direct solar control. In other words, when the sun comes up, the E region builds up. When the sun goes down, the E region goes down uh, to a residual nighttime level. But during uh, the late morning and early evening hours, in the summer months in the northern hemisphere, um, there can be instances of very high uh, dense clouds of electrons at E region altitudes, and this is called sporadic E, uh, another name for E-skip. So when someone says uh, he works somebody via E-skip, what he's talking about is his signal was refracted via the electron density in these clouds that drift from generally from east to west and uh, uh, propagation up to oh, about 2,000 kilometers can be uh, uh, experienced with uh, sporadic E and sometimes even clouds can line up uh, all the way to Europe and you can have uh, a good uh, sporadic E opening during the summer months uh, even on six meters, which is quite rare. Uh, although last summer was one of the best sporadic E um, years in history. There were Midwest stations working JAs, Japan's on uh, six meters, working Europe, etc. So it was pretty exciting. Um, like I said, this is a pretty important mode for six meters because generally F2 propagation, there's not enough electron density to uh, get allow propagation on six meters via the F region. So uh, everybody really looks forward to E region in the summer. Uh, also, should mention there's a lesser uh, occurrence of sporadic E in December too. So got to watch for that one. Yeah, we've got a couple guys here local that uh, before they went and took their general after uh, the changes changes in the regulations here recently, they were gung-ho six-meter guys, and they could pretty much uh, tell you what, what time of year it was the time to get on six because they, uh, they really were having a ball with it. And I remember I remember more than once talking into the wee hours of the night on 10 meters to the guys here local a few years back, and we'd have stations from all over the country come in at 10 or 11 o'clock at night and uh, 10 meters, uh, <laughs> you know, we can hear California real good on 10 meters most of the time, but that, anywhere else in the U.S. is kind of iffy. So, um, okay, let, let's move on to the next one, uh, auroral propagation. And I, being from Texas, I have a hard time pronouncing that uh, appropriately. Auroral propagation, uh, can you give us a rundown on that? Okay, yeah, auroral propagation is, uh, well, as the name indicates, uh, depends on aurora. Um, and in your comment about Texas is uh, well taken because uh, uh, generally the geomagnetic storms aren't severe enough to get down that way, but every once in a while they may, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some fellows down in your neck of the woods perhaps have worked uh, aurora. But what it is is uh, when the geomagnetic field becomes disturbed, uh, many electrons start precipitating. In other words, they uh, enter our, ion our atmosphere and head to the ground, but they're channeled by the Earth's magnetic field. So they occur in an annular ring around the geomagnetic pole. Generally, the ones we talk about is the North geomagnetic pole. Uh, of course, all of this stuff happens down at the south geomagnetic pole, but there's not a lot of people down there to take advantage of it. But uh, what happens is all these electrons uh, precipitate. They cause visual aurora, and if the storm is big enough, it can cause uh, radio aurora. And what that simply is is just uh, electron density is high enough to reflect uh, six meters, two meters, and all that kind of those those higher frequencies. Uh, 
this is a very important mode on six meters and, and even on two meters. Uh, and what you want to do during auroral propagation is point your antenna north towards the aurora. And it will uh, 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 reflect off of that. And you can usually you know, make contacts with other amateurs. One of the problems, though, is that uh, the signals are very distorted. And more than likely, sideband uh, might not get the job done. You might have to go to CW. Uh, the CW signal certainly won't sound like a pure tone. It'll sound kind of raspy and like a buzz, and uh, you might think that the other guy's transmitter is not working right, but uh, what it is is simply aurora, and that's a good way to, de to determine if that's what's going on. Uh, if the, you know, the K index is high, that's when you should generally look for aurora-type contacts, and uh, that's another thing that the uh, VHFers live for is uh, aurora propagation. Rural propagation. Okay. Yeah, we really don't get a whole lot of that down here. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the next one. Um, I had used to have a lot of fun with this one, Carl. Uh, backscatter. People wouldn't believe that I would work stations that I did, but it always seemed that I was lucky enough that when the backscatter was going on, I could grab a hold of it and use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, backscatter is uh, an interesting mode of propagation. And... Uh, Okay, backscatter is a pretty interesting mode of propagation, and uh, my familiarity is mostly with HF uh, backscatter. And what it allows you to do is uh, work stations that are close in. Uh, a, a very good example of that is uh, my wife, Vicki, AE9YL, was chasing uh, work all states on uh, five bands. And, of course, it's difficult to uh, work the close-in states on the higher bands because uh, the signals generally skip right over those closer-in distances. So what she took advantage of was backscatter to uh, work some of the close-in states like Illinois and uh, uh, Missouri and Ohio, et cetera, Wisconsin. But what backscatter simply is is uh, pointing your antenna uh, towards the ionosphere, and the ionosphere is not uh, uniform. It has small-scale irregularities, and what happens is your signal can scatter off of that. And scatter kind of means it kind of goes every which way it wants to. And luckily, a lot of it comes back enough that we can hear it. So it's a very important mode for uh, uh, HF. And, uh, of course, there's also uh, and the possibility of scatter on the VHF frequencies also. Uh, so, uh, you know, VHFers take advantage of that to... Uh, if they're working on some kind of an award like worked all states or uh, 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 grids, uh, they can use that to uh, fill in a lot of grids. Yeah, and in fact, I've had such good backscatter from time to time that I would be able to work guys on the other side of the county on 15 and 10 meters. You know, that's 30, 40 miles away, and there have been occasions when that's happened. Uh, interesting thing about worked all states uh, when you live in a state the size of Texas is that it's not difficult to get Texas. <laughs> oh, 700 miles. Right. Well, from Dallas, you're talking El Paso, yep. 700 miles, and uh, uh, Brownsville's about that far away. Anyway, that's that's kind of off subject. Well, okay, so we've covered some of those types of propagation. Um some of these guys might not understand this one, and uh, I never under—I never heard it called the blind zone. Uh, from the time I got licensed, they called it the skip zone. And we were talking about backscatter just a second ago. That's one of the ways to get around that skip zone. But uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the skip zone? Yeah, I, I don't think I, I think I might have heard the term blind zone, but. Uh, uh, I think it's more commonly called the skip zone. And, and what it means is uh, it's the distance from your QTH to where your RF generally is going to come down. Uh, and it's more pronounced on the higher bands. For example, uh, let's say you're on 15 meters, and if you had a very directional antenna and you pointed it straight up, of course your signal would go uh, straight up more than likely there's not enough ionization uh, to return it to Earth, so it'd go out into space and go forever. 
Now as you tilt that directional antenna down, uh, there's a point where uh, the elevation angle is low enough that the 15 meter electromagnetic wave will be refracted back to Earth. And where that hits Earth, uh, that distance back to your QTH is called the skip zone. And whether in other words, your your signal you know, generally skips over that total distance, and it's very tough to uh, work somebody there. Uh, the skip zone is a function of frequency. It's a function of uh, the ionosphere, which means it's a function of where we are in a solar cycle, the time of day, the month, etc. So it's hard to pin down exactly, uh, you know, what that distance is. But uh, it's most pronounced on the higher bands, and that's why you generally don't hear close-in stuff uh, on the higher bands. But like we just talked about, backscatter is one way to uh, fill that in. And of course, ground wave can also do it too. If you, you know, run high power with a good high antenna, you can... Uh, uh, negate some of that skip zone uh, close to your uh, your location. Well, also uh, the MCOM groups, for the most part, and uh, the one around here especially, are uh, they're they're really gung ho over NVIS, and uh, that will definitely bring uh, the stations closer into you, up where you can hear them and work them. The way you need to. Of course, my Elmers are probably spinning in their graves where NVIS is concerned because, in their opinion, if you had a 75-meter antenna that was only 30 feet off the ground, it, it just it wasn't a way to do things. <laughs> well, okay. Right. Right. Well, uh, okay, Carl. We've uh, we've covered just about everything in that I had uh, on my mind, and we. Uh, actually have gone a little long on this and I'm uh, I thank you for bearing with me through this interview before we uh, before we wrap her up do you have any any thoughts further thoughts on uh, some things these guys might need to know about radio wave propagation yeah just two points I guess to, to wrap it up uh, uh, you know what why is propagation important in amateur radio well it's uh, you know that, that's an interesting question because uh, amateur radio has evolved into a hobby, basically. Um, uh, of course, it was founded on uh, uh, three prime missions. One was emergency communications, uh, public service, and a pool of technical people. So, you know, when, when you're uh, uh, participating in, in these prime missions of amateur radio, emergency communications and public service and it's always good to understand propagation so you can pick the band that allows you to accomplish your mission. Uh, not all missions are close in where you use VHF. You know, there's a, a whole bunch of other public service that requires long-distance communications, and so a knowledge of which band is open right now when you need it is very helpful. Also, it contributes to the uh, uh, that other prime mission of that amateur radio operators are supposed to be a pool of technical people. Now, you know, understanding propagation doesn't mean you have to be an ionospheric physicist, but, you know, just have some basic knowledge. And the other point I'd just like to make is if, if you're really interested in about radio wave propagation, there's some uh, uh, good starter books out there. Uh, one of the best ones is uh, the New Shortwave Propagation Handbook, and it's available uh, from uh, CQ uh, Magazine guys. It's at www.cq-amateur-radio.com. That's a very good entry level, and it covers well, uh, sunspot cycles. It covers the propagation topics we talked about, and a whole lot more. And it's a very easy reading. Um, there's uh, another one, uh, a step above that. It's a little bit more technical. Pistol's Guide to HF Propagation, and it's on a, a CD available from uh, World Radio at www.wr6wr.com, and it's the 2000 CD-ROM. It's the whole, uh, all the issues of uh, World Radio in 2000 are on that CD, plus uh, uh, the Little Pistols Guide to HF Propagation. Now, there's some other books, too, that uh, are uh, available, and they get technically more involved. And if uh, anyone has any interest in uh, uh, knowing more about propagation or talking to me directly, I can be reached at k9la at awrl.net. 
So that's about all I have to say, Richard, and I uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about one of my favorite subjects, propagation. Well, Carl, you don't know how much I appreciate you coming on uh, coming on the podcast this week because, like I said, uh, this conversation was so interesting. I just kind of wanted to let the tape roll because there's a lot of good information there, and we just barely scratched the surface, I believe. Uh, but hopefully the guys listening out there, the folks listening out there, they'll go uh, check out some of these websites, read some of these books and articles, and uh, have, have, they'll be ready to, to be wearing them out in the contests or whatever. <laughs> of course, uh, come yep. think of it, look, when I was looking on the web, when I punched you in on, on Google, I noticed that uh, you've operated some DX stations and everything else and holy mackerel and the why the missus there she's she's liable to end up on my hero list also but as for this week let's uh we'll go ahead and wrap this up and uh, once again uh we want to thank carl k9la for uh visiting with us on resonant frequency the amateur radio podcast this week and we'll go ahead and move on to the next segment Okay, well, that's pretty much our show for this week. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, cover a couple things again. Uh, I'd like to hear from some of you new generals out there. I'd like to try and put a program together, uh, getting y'all's perspective on uh, your new HF privileges, the uh, new general license. Uh, I'd like to hear how y'all are overcoming some of the obstacles of getting on the air. And speaking of getting on the air, Remind y'all of a statistic that uh, Roy, 85KZ, clued us in on uh, a few weeks ago. Most amateur radio operators, or uh, what did he say, 20% of amateur radio operators uh, get on the air. That means there's 80% that never key up a radio, and that's simply because of microphone fright. So y'all get on out there and key that microphone up. You know, you should listen to some of these guys, some of these guys with the extra class licenses out there. You listen to them for very long, you know you're not going to say anything that's uh, <laughs> uh, going to embarrass you any worse than uh, they're embarrassed, or at least uh, you feel embarrassed for them. Uh, next, I would really like somebody to get in touch with me if they're a regular Linux user that uh, uses, Linux, uses a Linux machine to pursue uh, amateur radio. Um, like I said, I do have a couple of Linux boxes over here. One of them used to host this show, and I have another that I've run PSK31 on, uh, received packet cluster information or a DX cluster information on, that kind of thing. So, uh, I'd really like to hear from some of you Linux guys out there so we can try and put together, uh, a show concerning Linux. Um... Uh, I myself have been thinking, you know, so with all these new generals out there, and this show is geared towards getting the information to the newer guys as well as the older guys so that, you know, everybody can get on a level playing field. If you guys that have been around a while would like to contribute some tips for the new guys, uh, that is something we could also uh, probably get in, get squeezed into the show somewhere. Uh, we can either take them as audio emails that would be recorded audio file and send it to me email or just write me an email and I'll go ahead and read them on there. You will get full credit for your tip and uh, any information that we're able to use so that uh, these new guys can get on to pursuing the amateur radio uh, hobby and enjoying it as much as we all do. Speaking of audio feedback, I heard a little tidbit on one of the uh, Linux podcasts I listened to this week, a uh, gentleman uh, sent in an audio tip over there, and he what he said was, uh, those people who do not have a microphone to plug into their sound card on their computer can take a set of headphones with the same size plug as the microphone plug would be, plug it into the microphone jack, and speak into the left ear headphone, the left side of the headphone, and they would be able to record audio files. I haven't tried this myself. However, it makes a lot of sense because uh, years ago, young experimenter that I was, 
uh, I did take a speaker out of a old beat up transistor radio and plug it into my cassette player so that I would have a microphone. So uh, y'all give it a try. I mean, it's a little short afternoon experiment, it looks like to me. I may get around to trying that myself. Okay, everybody go over to the Frapper map and stick in a pen. Try and put in a call sign or a name or something so we can mention you by call sign or name on Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Uh, at the very least, go over and stick a pen in so we can see what's going on. We really want to see, see them showing up uh, for those folks listening to us in Hungary, the United Kingdom. Uh, we've already started getting some Canadian stations and the Netherlands and just about any other place that you may be because we really want to know who is who all's out there. We've got 55 pins in the map and we got 100 people downloaded the program this week. Therefore, uh, there's still some folks out there that uh, haven't put a pin in the map yet. Okay, iTunes. Y'all go on over to iTunes and uh, uh, put in a... Put in a piece of feedback for me, so I know what. So everybody that comes and takes a look at us over at iTunes can uh, get an idea of what the show's about. Uh, I'm just ready for any comments at this point, so y'all go on over there and leave some. For those of you who are picking us up over at Podcast Alley, y'all go on over there and vote. It's not going to hurt. My buddy Ben Grundy over at uh, Mysterious Universe, he's number 15 in the list because his uh. His folks are going over and voting for him, and you don't even have to become a member over at uh, Podcast Alley. Just go ahead and throw your vote in. Okay, feedback. If you have any comments, suggestions, ways we can improve the show, you don't like the music I play, my voice is getting on your nerves, whatever, go ahead and send me some feedback. Uh, that email address is kb5jbv at gmail.com. That's kb5jbv at gmail.com. And go on over to the page where the Frapper map is. That's kb5jbv.blogspot.com. kb5jbv.blogspot.com. Go on over and stick a pin in the map. And if y'all see me out at the Belt and Ham Fest this weekend, walk on up and shake my hand. I really want to hear what y'all think about uh, Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast. Keep an eye out for that name tag. It'll say KB5JBV on it in great big letters. I'll be dragging AA5HU around with me also, and he's uh, absolutely full of amateur radio knowledge. So y'all walk up and say hello. With that said, I guess we're down to the end of the program. We'd like to thank Midlife Crisis for the music heard on this podcast. Uh, Dave is uh, Dave does really good for us over there, uh, and uh, we're going to check out some of his other music and see if we can't get it on here. Uh, Y'all send me uh, an email, a feedback, something at kb5jbv at gmail.com. And with all that said, I'd like to thank my wife, Brenda, for putting up with me and my uh, endeavors in electronics, as it were. And until next week, everybody, 73.
working hard every day. Don't you dare go giving it all away. Dare give all mine away. Yeah. 